Today's Unashamed Alcoholic guest is Ryan Hampton, a prominent recovery advocate, speaker, and author who himself is in recovery from a decade-long opioid addiction. I was looking forward to chatting with Ryan about his thoughts on the term California sober and what we can do to change the conversation around addiction. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ryan. Ryan, thanks so much for joining me on the Unashamed Alcoholic today to chat uh, all things addiction and recovery. Um, I never like to make an assumption, but I see on your Twitter that in February you celebrated six years of sobriety. Is that that's correct? It did six years. I can't believe it either. It's it's sometimes I wonder how did I get to this place, you know? And I think it's it's days and hours and inches at a time and yeah. moments. I think more yeah. importantly, moments and in decisions, but, um, yeah, six years, it's, it's, um, it's amazing. It's like they say, a, a, a life beyond your wildest dreams. I mean, it's like way beyond that, but, yeah. um, super yeah. great. So yeah, oh, that's wonderful. Congratulations. So for anyone who isn't familiar with your story, could you sh- take, you know, the cliff's notes, version of your, uh, road to recovery or what your addiction was, uh, you know, and then how you got to, where you are today, which is, uh, just, a you know, an amazing, um, story and, uh, what the work that you're doing today is, is fantastic. Sure. And feel free to like interrupt me if I get a little too long winded because <laughs> sometimes I can with this story, but, um, you know, at first foremost, thank, thanks for having me on. Um, you know, my, my story, although it's my story, I, I don't think, you know, parts of it are, are that unique, right? I think many of us experience, the same feelings and kind of same circumstances, just mm-hmm. in different venues um, and, and, and kind of different areas of the country and uh, different families and, and employers and et cetera. But I was certainly not somebody who was um, kind of tagged to be an alcoholic or, or someone with a substance use disorder or struggling homeless on the streets with heroin uh, early in my life. I grew up in a, in a pretty um, middle-class neighborhood uh, in Miami, Florida, uh, my mom was a school teacher. My dad was a stockbroker. Uh, I was a weird kid, kind of always. I um, had a, a real interest in politics from a young age, um, really into history and social sciences and, and things like that. Um, and that all kind of flipped itself on its head uh, in 1993 uh, when I was 13, 14 years old. Uh, and my father was arrested, um, you know, by by the FBI uh, for, for a stock exchange fraud and ended up going to prison for several years. Um, and in that timeframe, you know, my mom did everything to kind of hold our family together and had a very difficult time. And we, you know, eventually lost our house and, Mm. um, I had to switch schools and, you know, mom had to go back to work and ended up working three jobs just to keep food on the table. And so the social situation in my house changed significantly. And during this time, I, I was trying to do everything I could to stay out of the house, right. To keep mm-hmm. my focus on other things. It was kind of these patterns and behaviors of, of personalities and whatnot, um, of trying to be something that I wasn't right. I, I would go out and I would volunteer at night and I'd find a political campaign and I'd walk to like a state Senator's office just to like have somewhere to go and do something that I saw as productive, um, and not have to worry about the, 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 the stuff at home because my family was very good about, you know, pretending things weren't happening. Right. I mean, that, that, that was, you know, we excelled at that as a family. Um, it was also during this time that I struggled with my identity as a human, right? Like I had severe identity issues, uh, around being, you know, a young gay man, right? Like I, I knew it, I didn't want it to be that way. Mm -hmm. Um, so I pretended 
but that part of my life didn't exist. And it was just something, it was just this deep driven down secret. And I think the combination between that and the pain and the trauma from that, plus the trauma of what was going on in my family and, Mm -hmm. you know, realizing that there was adverse childhood experiences around, um, uh, sexual abuse with people in the neighborhood and things like that. These were all things that were just starting to surface up. Mm-hmm. And so by the time uh, I was ready to go to college, I decided I wanted to get, I was going to fix everything and I was going to get as far away from home as possible. And I was going to go do the biggest thing that I ever could possible. And I was going to prove my family that to my family that I was like this great son and was going to just outshine my dad and make my family proud again. And um, so I, I, you know, uh, chose to move to Washington, D.C. and took a job uh, originally as an intern at the White House at the tail end of, of President Clinton's administration. Hmm. And that eventually turned into a job. And um, I was drinking, you know, I certainly used cocaine. I used other drugs, you know, um, probably drank too much, but it wasn't something during that time I could recognize as being a problem because so was everybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just very normal. The difference between me and everybody else though, was that I ended up homeless on a street corner on Hollywood and vine in Los Angeles, several <laughs> years later, looking for help with medic, you know, with nothing but Medicaid. Um, and the, the, the nexus for, for my, for, for my story and really the downfall, because I kind of had this up and coming career and political organizing and community organizing was uh, after Clinton left the White House, I stayed in DC to work for one of the national party committees, um, had this great job as a, as a, as a fundraiser, a national fu- uh, finance director um, for a big campaign. And I went hiking with um, my roommate and I ended up um, having a slip and fall on a real steep hill on the, on the Billy Goat Trail right outside of Washington, DC, injured my ankle, injured my, my, my knee in two spots and ended up uh, in an urgent care physician uh, setting Mm -hmm. and the urgent care physician, you know, booted my leg up, wrapped it up and said, you'll need to go get an MRI. And, you know, by the way, here's a prescription, you know, and the prescription was for a very high grade opioid. And this was Mm -hmm. back in 2003 before kind of like all the bells had been wrong about Mm -hmm. prescribing practices and what, what to give and what not to give. And, and, uh, the, the opioid they gave me was Dilaudid, you know, hydromorphone, which Mm -hmm. is a very, very strong medication. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, spoiler alert, I never did get that MRI. I never did get, you know, the x-ray, but I did go back and get another prescription, another prescription, another prescription. And sure enough, you know, the medication soon became something that was helping to mask a lot of other feelings that I was going through in my early twenties, right. Which Mm -hmm. was exploring my identity. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, uh, my father passed away at that time and, and we had a lot of unresolved issues and trauma there. And so, um, it became, you know, uh, a medication, not just for my, uh, my pain, you know, my physical pain, but also my emotional suffering. Mm -hmm. And, um, the, 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 the perfect storm, I guess, for where things just kind of took off was I moved back home to Florida after shortly after my father had passed away in um, late 2003, early 2004, kind of when I was just kicking, you know, getting used to, to, to relying on these medications to solve all sorts of pain in my mm-hmm. life. And if you know anything about the kind of modern day overdose crisis, it, it, you know, South Florida, particularly Broward County, which is where I was, was the, the, the height of the pill mill crisis. I mean, there were more pill mills, uh, in Broward County than there were McDonald's at the time. That's not an exaggeration and pill specific pharmacies. And I got caught up in that, um, 
you know, kind of unscrupulous doctor patient relationship in pill mill world really bad. And it led me on to a, you know, the better part of a decade of, of um, severe substance use and homelessness and overdose and eventually to heroin uh, I was cut off from the pills. Um, Many, many, many attempts at treatment during those 10 years, nothing really stuck. Um, never really got qualified treatment. Didn't even know what a sober living was, mm-hmm. uh, a good sober living until I finally did get sober in 2014. And by the time I got sober, um, I was at the end of my ropes. I mean, had I waited a couple more days, I probably would have been dead. I was wow. on the streets searching for help. Um, my mom was searching for help. I relied on the public system. Um, and, uh, got a bed at a, at a, on, on, on Thanksgiving Eve, 2014, uh, in a public facility in Tarzana, California, went there, um, was kicked out after five days because they, not because I did anything wrong, but because they didn't have a bed for me any longer. And, um, luckily within a day, my mom was able to help find another facility for me to get into. My mom was my, my best advocate, my chief advocate, my patient advocate without Mm -hmm. her, I wouldn't be here today. Um, and I stayed in that facility, you know, for about three months, but people often ask, did treatment save your life? Mm -hmm. Well, treatment was great. Treatment was important. Treatment contributed towards saving my life. Mm -hmm. What really saved my life was when I got out of treatment, I had a safe, stable, qualified, sober living, a recovery residence, a place Mm -hmm. where peers were at the opportunity at finding a job, the opportunity um, to plug into a community that cared about me that lifted me up when I couldn't lift myself up. That's what really saved my life. And then people will say, you know, nowadays, well, is that why you do what you do today? You know, is that why you advocate? Is that why you wrote the book? Is that why you, 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 you started the voices project and the recovery advocacy project and these other nonprofits. And the answer really is no, you know, it, 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 my personal experience has guided those efforts Um, but the reason that I got involved wasn't because of what happened to me. It was because of what I saw happening to others and Mm -hmm. people that I was very close to and, uh, had come to love in my community. And, Mm -hmm. um, they were being turned away at hospitals and turned away at treatment facilities when they needed help and insurance companies, not being able to pay for care and, uh, being, um, told they, they, they couldn't get a job because they had a past Uh, history with substance use disorders Mm -hmm. and just Mm -hmm. just this, you know, people call it stigma. Mm -hmm. And and I go as far to say, you know, stigma is just a nice word for, you know, systemic discrimination and bias against people who use drugs and people who are in recovery. And that's Mm -hmm. what's ultimately killing people. And um, I thought to myself, we have to change that, you know, because um, these friends I'm talking about didn't end up like me. They, they ended up dead. Right. You know, a lot of them ended up dead. And um, in the summer of 2016, I uh, packed up everything I had with my best friend and traveled the country on a on a, a road trip across America, crossed um, 28 states in 30 days and traveled 8,000 miles to go see uh, recovery homes, recovery centers, meet with policymakers, go in to jails and prisons and meet with people on the streets and people who use drugs and harm reductionists and stay in the homes of family members who had lost their children to overdoses to learn what was happening out there. What were people Mm -hmm. doing and Mm -hmm. got back from that trip and realized that 
I wasn't alone in this feeling. There was a lot of people out there who had a lot of stuff to say about the addiction crisis when they had a microphone, Mm -hmm. but were those words really being met with action where it mattered? And the answer to that question was no. And so that summer we, we formed the voices project, which was just an attempt to get more people to tell their stories and to tell them out loud and to tell them proudly. Um, And it kind of, was just this, I can't explain it, but this just phenomenon sensation of, you know, we used Facebook and started getting thousands of submissions and sharing them and um, they went viral and, you know, the Facebook page grew and the Twitter grew and the Instagram grew. And, you know, those were the only tools we had at our disposal. And mm-hmm. um, after all this storytelling about a year of it, you know, going into 2017, 2018, I said, my gosh, we have all these people that are telling their stories, but they're asking me now what? Now, what do we do? And the Voices Project then shifted into, you know, an advocacy organization and a training organization where we, you know, started teaching people how to use these stories for impact, how to use uh, effective public narrative, the story of uh, self, story of us, story of now, moving people's feet to action by using storytelling. And the outcomes have been great. Um, We've had a lot of success. Uh, with changing policy in, in different states and, and, and on the federal level as well. That gives me chills, you know, because it's, especially when you talk about, you know, the, the importance uh, that your mom played getting you help there. Um, and, and, you know, the sort of that last, that last effort. Um, and that, you know, I've never heard someone say that before, that you are doing the work you are now because of who didn't make it to where you are, right? Like that's, I love that. Per, you know, that perspective on it, that sort of the shifting the perspective on it, not because of where you are, and how, you know, your story, but because of all the other people whose stories can't be told anymore. I love that. That's just a, it's a beautiful way to put and, it. And we all, and also for those stories that are still here and that yeah. can be told the, the, I, what I've learned too, is that not every single one of us, even in 2021 has the, um, luxury of being loud and proud about our recovery status. People can still lose their jobs. People can still lose their children. People can still be denied housing and healthcare and life insurance. And so it makes it more urgent and it makes it more important for those of us who can tell our stories and who can be loud about this to do it for those who can't. Exactly. And And that's exactly why, you know, I'm doing this and why I think that what you're, you know, what you're doing is that it's the it's the openness, right? Living tra- transparently and openly, and and sharing those stories. And I I was just saying today that like I have a lot of people say a lot of the time, you know, well you're in AA, you can't talk about like, well, I can tell my story all I want. It's the whoever else is there, I'm not going to tell their story or, or you know take away their anonymity. But I, I want to be open because I want to be. I sh- I'm proud of who I am now. I want to be able to talk about this, just like everyone who's in recovery should be able to say they are, but it's hard to even imagine that people are still denied things or have them taken away because of recovery or addiction or their, their, their past. Right. That's and to I, touch on the, the anonymity part. Right. So I encourage anybody who is in a 12 step fellowship, who's listening to check out, there's a, a world services that developed a great um, flyer pamphlet guidance on this called advocacy with anonymity. I mean, the tradition state, look, we don't, you know, when I go out, I identify as a member of a 12 step fellowship. I don't necessarily name the fellowship, Mm -hmm. um, unless I'm within a group of fellows. Um, but I don't 
advertise my fellowship and I right. certainly don't disclose someone else's recovery status. Right. That is for them. Me yeah. going out and talking about my own personal recovery story and talking about the gifts of recovery and what we should be doing to make recovery more accessible and equitable mm-hmm. to every single person who seeks it uh, is not breaking anonymity. My anonymity does not mean that I cannot go out and be Ryan Hampton, a person in long-term recovery. Yeah. That is a complete, you know, people have a very uh, wrong perception. And I think people forget that Bill Wilson himself testified before the United States Congress in the seventies, you know, Marty Mann, his sponsee, kind of the first lady of recovery advocacy, who was a hardcore 12 stepper founded the national council on alcoholism, and drug dependence, which is, was the, the, the first advocacy organization for addiction recovery in this country. Like, mm-hmm. like, like the founders of AA, right? <laughs> like they were, they publicly went out and talked about yeah. their recovery status, but they you know, so sometimes people misconstrue what anonymity is. And sometimes people are afraid mm-hmm. uh, of, 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 you know, um, of the unknown. And so they use that as a shield. And I can understand that, you know, um, because I understand that it is still a very personal decision for many for uh, the reasons I mentioned before, right? Yeah. It, and not everybody has that luxury. Yeah. Um, but to those who criticize others for doing it, um, <laughs> that's just factually incorrect. Exactly. Um, yeah. And you can, you don't have to look any further than, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous World Services for that guidance. That's wonderful. I hadn't, I didn't know that, uh, that existed. I'll, well, I'm going to have that. I'll look at that when we're talking about language in particular, like saying I'm an alcoholic, uh, I'm an addict, I'm in recovery. What's, what do you use? Like, what's, do you have a, a way that you prefer to talk about that? Like how, how do you, you know, qualify yourself, I guess. Uh, it depends on who I'm talking to. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I, I mean, in my own personal recovery program, I stick to tradition and culture within that because it's where I grew up and it's what I'm comfortable with when I'm talking to policymakers or the media or people kind of in the, you know, quote unquote outside world. Mm -hmm. um, I shy away from words such as addict. I definitely don't use stigmatizing words like, you know, junkie and wino and things like that. I mean, I think the way we tell our stories outside of the rooms um, has a huge impact on how people outside of the rooms view us. Um, there's some great studies and data done by Harvard's recovery research Institute under John Kelly that shows how, um, people's perceptions about us, uh, change and have impact on based on the language that's used. Language is very powerful. So when I'm, you know, speaking to folks, I'd say outside of my recovery program, I identify as a person in recovery, you know, I try to, to stick more to a disease model. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, when I'm in my recovery program, you know, I do whatever I want to do, you know, I mean, that's, that's my family. So, um, that but I think sense. the way, the way we talk about this though, in the public is incredibly important. Yes. And I mean, I've, I, I have the name is alcoholic in the podcast and, uh, because it wasn't a word I used publicly for a long time because I was, embarrassed or worried about saying that word. And then at some point I was just like, I'm done making other people feel comfortable. You know, this is, this is me. I'm, I'm, I'm going to make, do what I, what I want to do. And if people don't understand that they can ask me questions about it. And there's some great um, precedent to that thought too. I mean, I've also, you know, um, been one to, to challenge 
you know, belief systems, even around the language, right? And, and I believe that you can look at the LGBTQI, you know, community and movement that where they embraced where people were saying you shouldn't use the word queer. Yeah. You know, it's so stigmatizing. And they said, no, we're going to embrace this word. Right. And by embracing it, they normalized it. Exactly. Right. And, and I think that in a perfect world, we would get to a place where we would normalize the word out. My dog, I apologize. <laughs> we would normalize the word alcoholic and addict, yeah. you know, more. Yeah. I, I do believe we should embrace those words as much as possible, but we're not, we're not there yet. We are no. getting and it's everyone's choice. And I think that's important too, right? Absolutely. It's just whether you want to talk about it, how you want to say it. Um, another thing with language, you you wrote something a little while ago about the term California sober, um, right? With Demi Lovato is using that, using that term. And there was two very different sides to that argument that like California sober, which means you're you know, I, I'll let you, I'm going to let you explain it because you wrote the article on it, but that there's two very different sides of looking at recovery. Either you are, you're completely fully sober or you recover how you wish. And it doesn't mean 100% you don't do drugs or alcohol. I don't think it's either. <laughs> so I think sobriety, maybe people can, can get in the weeds about that, yeah. but recovery is self-defined. Absolutely. Recovery yes. is yes. self-defined. Recovery is is a, is a process of change. Mm -hmm. I mean, recovery doesn't mean that you just don't pick up a drink Mm -hmm. or don't pick up a drug. Like I know plenty of people who don't drink and use drugs that are completely miserable and live lives that like, they still lie and cheat. And some of them, you know, I mean, like, like recovery is a process of change. It's about quality of life. It's about, you know, where you've come as a person And I subscribe to multiple pathways of recovery. I think there's many different ways to get there. And I think for some people, you know, and, and, and like it or not, if you look at the data, you know, the majority of the 23 million Americans who are in long-term recovery are in what's called natural recovery, right? Like they may not have gone to a 12 step fellowship Mm -hmm. or program. They, you know, may have used crack cocaine Mm -hmm. or powder cocaine or heroin or medications, overused medications at one point. And through a process of change, got to a place and some of them may still drink on the weekend, right? you know, but their life is remarkably better Mm -hmm. than it was then. Mm -hmm. And so it's very individualized, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like now that wouldn't work for me. I am abstinent. My pathway is abstinence. Yes. But who the hell am I to tell Demi Lovato what does work for her or doesn't work for her? Because she should be given all the options, right? And then with guidance, medical guidance and peer guidance, figure out what works best for her, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I I am not in the business of shooting people down. We don't shoot our wounded, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that Mm -hmm. is a, a rule, but I think there's a, there's a culture behind abstinence, um, sometimes that can rear an ugly head and I will be the first to admit that because I've seen it, you know, I've participated in it early in my recovery. I think it's Uh, a learning process when you're in recovery, right? Because you yourself is trying to figure out what works for you. And then when you find what works for you, like, well, why isn't everyone doing, doing it this way, you know, and I've seen the same thing. People, uh, who are in, um, you know, the same program I am are, I, I find, you know, when you hear about like, let's say we talk about someone who comes on here and they say, oh, I'm, I'm not an alcoholic. I have a drinking problem, but I'm not an alcoholic. I find there can be a lot of judgment over like, well, that's, that's, that's impossible. You know, like, well, who am I to 
say what they are, what not, like everyone can define themselves and you figure out what works for you. And it's a, I mean, it's their life. Why, why would I try to tell them, no, you should be doing this or you should be calling yourself that. And then you should get into a 12 step program and then you should do, you know, like who cares if they're on the track they want to be on, if they're on, you know, whatever that you're right, like the road to recovery, whatever that looks like you do you, you know, like that has no impact on, on my life. I'm a, at the core of it, my, what I subscribe to is radical love, right? Radical love means radical acceptance Mm -hmm. as well, Mm -hmm. you know, and we don't kick people out of this club, Mm -hmm. no matter what. Absolutely. Absolutely. Don't do it, you know, and, and I'll tell you that Demi Lovato, uh, article that I did for salon, I've never received more nasty, (laughs) messages in my years of writing that I did. And most of it came from within the recovery community. Wow. Yeah. And it didn't hurt me. I mean, it just was very enlightening to me that we actually talk about breaking down barriers of shame (laughs) and discrimination from the real world. We have a lot of work to do within our own community as well. Healing to do in our own community as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The the judgment, you know, like I mean, she's alive. Let's, let's allow her to figure out what works for her. You know, she, she made it through something incredibly traumatic. So let's, let's let her allow her to find her own way there. I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the, the judgment and, you know, it goes back to the, the stigma and the shame and that, you know, um, what do you think can be done when you see stuff like that? And, you know, in general, let's say from people who aren't in recovery, what can we do to, help continue to break that down, the, the shame, the judgment, the stigma around addiction and, and recovery? Well, I mean, the, my theory of change is that the more people that recover out loud that are able to recover out loud, the more we're able to do that. People just have to see it for themselves. And that means that people from all different types of recovery pathways, right? Like abstinence-based, moderation, medication, whatever it may be, like people need to, we need to get to a place as a society and a culture where we welcome that and we welcome people into our communities and that we further understand kind of the science and the data and the numbers behind the different pathways of recovery, right? Mm -hmm. Because um, all people have known, and it's been through the media, has mostly just been Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous. Now grant you that saved my life and it continues to save my life every single day. But there are many other mechanisms out there. You have to look just at the numbers of the 23 to 24 million Americans just here in the United States that live in long-term recovery. You know, the number of what was it? AA membership worldwide is just 2 million. So like only a small percentage of Mm -hmm. those folks are members of of, of 12 step fellowships. Like there's other people are doing this many other ways. And yeah. we just need to understand that my way works for me, mm-hmm. might work for you, might not. And mm-hmm. if it doesn't, that's okay, because there's other things that you can be doing as well. Mm-hmm. You know, Absolutely. and I think, I think we're starting to get to that point. I think we're starting to get to that point. When you look back at, you know, the, the, that first prescription, like that fall that day on the trail and the, the prescription you were given, like, what if you hadn't fallen there? Do you think something you would still would have found yourself on a pathway into addiction at some point? Do you think it's like sort of predisposed or that it would have eventually come out some other way? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is what happened. So, I mean, I, that's the reality of it. Um, Mm -hmm. Probably who knows, 
Did you Not ever talk probably. about addiction in your family? Was there was there a history no. of addiction in the family? Did your no. was there ever an an ops like because I always say you know in my I think we're in a similar generation. I don't want to make any assumptions. <laughs> in my generation growing up, it was never sobriety, not drinking was never presented as an option. Like there right. was no like, you know, just so you know, you don't have, it's it's assumed that you're just going to drink, especially yeah. as a teenager and then growing up. So, you know, I always, I'm curious, like with any, any guests, like, were you ever spoken to about, you know, the per- potential of addiction or alcoholism was it in the family you know presented the option of sobriety yeah i mean i've since discovered that there were some issues that ran in the family my dad a little bit my grandfather definitely with sleeping medications and Mm. yeah my 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 grandfather's uncle was a hair you know a heroin user i mean like there's things that i've discovered in the family tree since getting into recovery um, was it a topic discussed at the family table? No. <laughs> um, ever as a young kid? No. Um, was it something that was discussed in school? Yes. But how, I mean, right. we had cops come in and tell us about, yeah. drugs. <laughs> yeah. you know, you and I grew up, I mean, I'm, I'm again, a, 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 an assumption. I grew up in just say no. Like I grew yes. up watching yeah. Nancy Reagan on television with Mr. T, you know, talking about the dangers of drugs. I mean, yeah. that, that, you know, McGruff, you know, I yeah. mean, those, <laughs> yeah. that, that was the education that I got. So yeah. like that, that was, you know, you know, pure eighties style. Right. Yeah. So, and, 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 you know, don't do drugs, you know, eggs in the pan, the whole nine yards. What like, I always think about. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that was, that was, that was me. So, um, and we know that didn't work, right. Mm-hmm. If it worked, you know, we wouldn't be where we're at today. I mean, we know mm-hmm. that, that whole kind of style of prevention is BS. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what do you, what would you say, like, you know, when you think about talking to kids now, like what would work to talk to kids now about this? I, 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 I truly believe that like, there's very little you can tell a kid you know, you, you can educate them somewhat. There isn't anything that's going to completely prevent. Hmm. Mm-hmm. People are going to experiment. People mm-hmm. are going to use drugs mm-hmm. no matter what. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the proportions of those numbers grow no matter how much money we throw into prevention. Mm-hmm. Where my focus is, is what do we do when that happens? Right. How do we support how do we ensure that it doesn't become chaotic drug use? Mm-hmm. How do we ensure that we protect them? How do we ensure that we let them know that they're welcomed and they're accepted and we're going to get them help if they need it? And there's some fascinating models around peers, peer recovery specialists. Mm-hmm. Like I truly believe dollars would be better spent in schools than sending in medical professionals and these scare tactics and these cops and DEA agents to tell these horror stories that we should spend that money on training young people yeah. who are in recovery. And there are a legion of them yeah. to be peer supports for other young people. Yeah. Like, I think there's more trust between a young person and a young person than there is with a counselor and a young person. And, and we've seen that peer model work so well with adults. Mm-hmm. We could do it with younger folks too. I believe that that's, that's how we save more lives. That's how we create more trust. Right. Um, and, and, and that's what we should be doing, but try convincing the federal government that, you know? (laughs) So one last question, speaking about the federal government, I saw 
I'm in Canada, but I am well aware of everything that's going on down there. We are uh, attached at the hip, kind of. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, I saw that, you know, the uh, President Biden had just, the, there was an announcement of some funding, some important funding that was uh, in yeah. his new budget. Can you talk uh, uh, for a minute or two yes. about that? Historic um, recovery support services, which are defined by things like I just talked about peer coaches and housing and job training. And, you know, we do such a good job. No, I wouldn't say we do such a good job, but we put a lot of focus on the acute stages of someone's substance use disorder, meaning like in the crisis stage and when they need treatment. Mm -hmm. And then after treatment, they just kind of like, Mm we don't do anything. Mm -hmm. Right. And recovery support services cover that gap. Right. And that's, that's what recovery, because recovery to me isn't treatment. Recovery is what happens after treatment. Right. And for some people, they don't even go to treatment. They just start on the recovery, you know, uh, continuum. Mm -hmm. And, um, historically the, in the United States, we've received about $20 million, you know, give or take per year, just in the last couple of years towards those services, recovery, community organizations, recovery, housing, peer Mm -hmm. recovery, support specialists, you know, innovate, you know, job training, uh, you know, job opportunities, trades, et cetera. And, um, this year ever for the first time ever, um, for the next year's budget, FY 22, uh, the president has proposed a 10% set aside in the block grant for substance use treatment, which would uh, translate into about $350 million a year, wow. which is historic levels of funding for these services. So we're definitely headed in the right trajectory. Let's mm-hmm. just hope it holds up and that Congress approves. It. <laughs> That's amazing. That's fantastic. That's it's mind blowing. That's um, um, wonderful. Thank you so much for chatting with me. I really, it was really nice to meet you. I follow you. See, you know, I see all the the good news and all your. You've got a lot of interesting uh, things to say and lots of interesting points. I love that article on Demi Lovato. I think you raised some really interesting points there. That you know, even in recovery, I think it are pertinent to especially to people in recovery who might have their own sort of uh, set judgments on that. So I think the work you're doing is fantastic, and your your personal story is. Nothing short of a miracle as well. So thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thank you, Becca. It's good to meet you. And hopefully we'll get to meet sometime soon in person. Yay, that'd be great. I always love when I learn something new from a guest. I took away a lot of things from this conversation with Ryan, including the fact that there is a lot of judgment uh, among people in recovery. It's interesting to hear that. A bit saddening, a bit frustrating, but always interesting. I hope you took something away from this conversation too. Thanks for listening. See you next time.